Welcome everyone. Today I've got Roger Thisdell with me again for some conversation. Uh, if you've seen our previous conversation, um, you'll know about Roger and the work that he's up to. So I won't repeat all of that here, um, but welcome you to check all that out. What I wanted to uh, do with this time with Roger today is um, really explore a couple more topics in detail, um, maybe get some insight and some guidance for particular uh, praxis points, uh, issues around um, potential helpful aids and uh, ways of going about a meditative practice um, that might be more efficacious for folks. Um, part of this is born out of my own just sort of personal desire to, I feel a bit stuck where I'm at in exploring a meditative practice. And I was very inspired by my conversation with Roger and um, feeling like uh, I could, draw on some of his insights uh, for some, for some uh, pointers on, you know, maybe a, a new direction or new ideas uh, to bring into my practice that could be helpful. And so as we were talking about this, we thought, well, this could be more broadly helpful for folks. So um, why not just do it in, as another conversation and put it up and hopefully there's something of value here for, for folks besides me, I'll be sort of a guinea pig maybe. And we can talk about all sorts of things about practices and where my, phenomenological sense of self is at and where it, you know, what my motivations are for trying to alter or transform that, et cetera, et cetera. But, uh, so that's sort of all by way of an introduction. Um, that said, welcome Roger. And thanks again for, for joining me for some conversation. Cool. Good to, yeah. Good to be back, uh, talking with you. And, um, so, I mean, we, we just, we, you know, we were actually talking quite a bit beforehand. We had right. bouncing lots of ideas off of each other about what, this could be uh you know so part meditation guidance session to help you progress along your journey and part um message to a, a broader audience to help them and sort of you know i was inspired by your conversations with Flamin pascal and john viveki on the religion that's not a religion and you guys were um Talking, talking to some points about okay, human development projects. Uh, call it if you call it, call it that. Um, in a way that promotes the flourishing of everyone, that has transparency, that um, develops deep trust among people. Uh, noticing, I mean, these are some of the points I picked up. How roles can, can change at some point. You're mm. the student. At some point, you're the teacher, and that's flexible and is reciprocal learning um so 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 i mean i yeah again like i said i'd like to start with first asking you how how would you describe where you're at in your meditation journey um what are your main questions mm. in a way that then yeah my mind can meet your mind i can kind of see more your point of view right uh, and then, and then help you to come see my point of view at, from sure, this sure. Uh, fourth path, uh, enlightenment, centerlessness, um, whatever we call it, and, and 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 then maybe perhaps we'll experiment with having kind of a meta conversation over the top of this, uh, talking about some of those ideas that you were uh, speaking to with uh, Layman Pascal and John Vareke. Yeah. So definitely. So great. All right. Where I'm, where I'm coming from is, uh, I, I've, huh, hmm. 
So without getting into the full life trajectory here, uh, but just some brief little spark notes, um, I come from a Christian tradition raised in an evangelical context. Um, so was sort of very interested in religion and spirituality from a very early age. And that has undergone a series of transformations as I've gone through my own process of development and thinking about what this means and kind of framing that more in terms of, say, a Paul Tillich kind of sense of ultimate concern, what's ultimately of value and worth and importance, um, to the point where um, I'm very much, I feel, uh, what's the word, sort of distance from where I originally began these sorts of, um, these sorts of interests um, and passions to a new place where um, I'm locating the work that I feel that needs to be done uh, much more internally in the sense that as I've tracked sort of my sense of what is of ultimate concern, it's sort of transitioned from a kind of relationship to a deity to a sense that that deity isn't so separate, but is actually part of everything. And I am part of that to now a sense that maybe even this deity is in, in some ways a deep projection of something fundamentally internal. And as I've read more mystical literature from a number of different traditions, been deeply inspired and, and yeah, uh, called to, to explore the, my own capacities for direct experiential communion or, or, uh, or unity with that ultimate uh, reality. And so for me, as I've explored meditation, it seems like that is sort of the psychotechnology that can afford um, those sorts of experiences, which are transformative of my sense of identity and hopefully uh, would provide me an insight into the nature of myself at its most deep foundational level, which in turn, I think I, I am presuming and assuming it would be a revelation about the nature of reality itself. Uh, that would be one way of, of phrasing it. So um, as I progressed in sort of this way of thinking, uh, picked up a meditation practice, and the one that has sort of I've most engaged with, though I've never had a teacher of a particular, you know, I've never done like regular teaching engagements or anything like that with with a teacher. Um, but I did find the work of, of uh, Lee Brat Bracington and his jhanas. And so we talked a little bit about that in our previous conversation. Um, and one of the things that I was deeply interested in there, which is what introduced me to the idea that meditation was a basically it was more than what I'd assumed it to be, which is, oh, I can get centered and I can feel calm and, and, and more restful. But actually that this is a, a, a psychotechnology that can um, basically alter your state of consciousness to such a radical degree that it is radically transformative um, and mystical. Um, and so I pursued the kind of jhana approach that, that Bracington writes about in his book. And I felt like I was able to sort of track a little bit with some of those particular you know, uh, uh, stages, I guess you'd call them, of, of a meditation practice. Um, but I feel like it didn't really do anything ultimately transformative in the way that I was seeking. Um, I've been able to get into very deep, calm states. I've been able to, you know, I have a Muse headband, which I was excited about to see, oh, maybe this will help in terms of being able to put some objective correlative data to my internal 
subjective experiences in order to help guide that process better. And I've seen shifts that occur in my brain states, but ultimately it's one of just deep calm. And I'm looking for something beyond that. And I, I feel like I'm, okay, calm is great, but where's this whole unia mystica thing? Where's, where's the transformative revelation of my, of my deep self and that union with the ultimate or something like that. Right. So I'm, I'm, that's my goal. And I feel like what I've been doing hasn't really been getting me there. Maybe it's a path or a, a, a part of the journey that still needs to deepen or whatnot. But um, when I learned about uh, you and your experiences that you've talked about and sort of your new default phenomenological state of mind, I felt like this is fascinating. This is, this is, seems to be what I am, am trying to bring about in my own uh, experience. And so, um, yeah, so I was then really deeply interested that, that you'd been doing jhana meditation, but then kind of use that as a springboard for something else. And so I thought, well, I'm looking for that something else. So how do we, how do we get there? So I don't know, that'd be my, okay. my first pass at some of that. Good, good. Well, well, so what I realize is, um, I think, yeah, I think there's some things you just said that helped me understand more how you see the big project and, and such. Um, what, one thing it would be good to touch on is, yeah, your language of a communion with uh, a God or, you know, the, the divine or something, which still perhaps suggests uh, quite, a, quite a big degree of a, a, a reifying of some thing, objectifying of uh, a thing and, um, what I found too, and what you know, Buddhism talks about the inside emptiness. You stop reifying anything, everything. Like it's, there's no thing. There's no, there's no there's nothing to contact. There's no object to get closer to. There's no two objects to merge. Um, it, can I, I? Yeah. So that's really. I want to throw this also in there. I there there seem to be um, in the, in conversations about non duality, which is ultimately an experience of non-duality is what is um, I'm inspired to, to have and what I'm seeking to experience. Um, but what non-duality is and how it's been conceived has been differently expressed. So there is on one hand, you know, especially in more of the kind of Christian tradition, there's like the union with the divine and sort of the beatific vision and seeing the face of God and whatnot, which is sort of still very theological and, you know, subject having experience of an other, et cetera. Um, there's also then a kind of more unity experience of that sort of ecstatic oneness. That seems to be another kind of uh, sense of non-duality. But then there's the non-duality that you are that you've talked about, which is sort of a living, perpetual state uh, of of yeah non-separation with experience or something like that. And so these strike me as somehow related i don't know how but just to mm. clarify it's not necessarily that um you know my end goal here is just oh the the grand shining face of god experience it's whatever non oh. yeah <laughs> i mean that would All be great time, forever. <laughs> yeah. i mean you know hey if that's possible whatever but but whatever that non-dual experience is um yeah so well, that's part of what needs to be clarified, I think, probably for me a little well, bit. Well, and then I, I think even to to bring it back down to earth, like 
what is the goal here? Why do we care about it? Why do you care about having a non-dual experience? And I think ultimately, because it feels good or you suffer less when that's happening. And that's, and if it, and if it didn't do that, you wouldn't care about it. Like, I think, I think the real deep motivation for any of this work is I just don't want to suffer, want to suffer a lot less. Um, um, yeah, yeah, I may just, you know, as we do this as well, like, I, I want to speak to like different parts of your mind. So you might have like a really broad conceptual uh, overview of the, yeah, yeah, the, the, the grand project here, um, you, you, you reflect on uh, your life, uh, how has my, my spiritual journey been? And, and then, you know, that's like, uh, there's like the remembering self, you know, it's different forms of self, but, but, but then just like come down to like this moment, like really, like, and I'd encourage, encourage you like this moment, how would you describe your, your experience? If you look with your attention, can you can you find or point to the sense of the duality or the boundaries uh, and and in space? Um, okay, so I feel as though I am centered to use a kind of word that you use as a self agent that I usually locate around here because this is where my sense organs are you know, eyes and ears and everything. Perfect, so yeah. most of the kind of sensory information and inputs coming in here. And so I, I feel like a, an, an agent operating in a three-dimensional, ultimately four-dimensional space time. Mm -hmm. And that what is out, what is, there's an, there's sort of an outside and there's an inside. Um, I feel like I ha I don't have control over the outside. It's not, it's not up to me what happens. It's like, I, and then, of course, when you, well, I won't get into uh, the narrative framings of why we that seems to make sense, but there seems right, to be right. like so, so like, avoid avoid that yeah uh, subtle slippage right yeah, there yeah yeah so it feels like um, two things actually are possible when I start thinking about this, and and there can be a, a shift here which is interesting. So um, there's one sense in which oh, there's this stuff out here and I'm relating to it and I'm sort of mapping it. But I don't, I don't perceive it as a map. I, it's, so, um, it's so real. It's so convincing that mm. most of the time I completely forget, oh, I just have sense organs that are mapping information or whatever. I just, I'm going through the world. Um, when I start to think about it now, maybe that's what you're saying we should bracket. But the thing is, when I think about it differently, my sense of experience can shift, right? So for example, if I'm sitting down and I'm like, okay, wait a second, this is all mapped in my mind and that all the experiences that I'm having are internal experiences. Well, now everything's shifted in the sense, in a way that it's internal and I can sit with that a little bit and I can be like, oh, this is what feels like is out here is in here at the same time, my whole sense of out here in here is coming from my mapping of myself in relationship to my environment. So 
that's about as far as I can get to like internalizing reality and thinking about, oh, this is an internal kind of phenomenal experience. Um, but then that's kind of where it ends. And, and I, I also don't really see much, much to come from that. Um, in some ways it could potentially even be sort of, you know, solipsistic or pathological or something. If it, if it goes too far of like, everything is just in here, you know? So anyway, that's, that would be sort of how I would explain my experience. And so when I hear other forms of sort of an epistemic agent being described that don't cohere with that, I'm deeply intrigued um, and want to know, because I don't think this is, this is it, you know, I don't think this is the, the, the ultimate real thing. And so I want to, yeah, shift that a bit. Yeah, that's, um, well, I, th I think that's good that you, I mean, it sounds almost like you, you're able to think your way into a different perspective. Is that how you describe it? Yeah, I think that it feels like if I can begin to conceptualize things differently, then I can start to feel a phenomenological shift of like, oh, mm. that's really interesting. I mean, if you do a thought experiment and, and you tell someone, you know, hey, basically just give them Kant, you know, and be like, hey, actually, there's like a thing in itself that we're only not, we're never really even able to experience because we just, we're just mapping the sensory world, you know, internally and all this stuff. And that's all that we're ever actually engaging with is the phenomena. There's sort of like a moment that I think can happen. Mm -hmm. um, and so there is a sort of revelatory knowledge that I think can shift that frame of awareness. Um, but maybe, maybe a conceptual, uh, you know, rethinking isn't the mode into this sort of a thing at all. And maybe there's a different way in. Well, well, I, I think, I think it gives at least potential in the beginning. If you can, you can reliably make that perspective shift happen and maybe you do it through a kind of thought process. Okay. But then pay attention to the, how the feeling quality changes, how you're, how you're uh, using your attention differently to get into that that altered perspective um and then see if you can do it without the the conceptual overlay on top mm. um and then can you hold it can you hold it is that that could be a kind of practice okay hold, i'm gonna try and my practice is hold this view of everything is a qualia everything is in the mind mm. um you, you you flagged very wisely yeah there's danger for a solipsistic uh, uh, viewpoint there and be careful of that um but yeah um yeah can, I, I recommend like try, try try to play with that hold with that and i i think this is part of the process is to to notice the malle malleability of perspective phenomenologically such that the default model, the model that everything's, you know, there's this inside and then outside, it, it gets juxtaposed with this other model. And, you know, if you can do it so, so back to back, it just calls into question, well, the default model, is it really the default model? And I think perhaps the mind then sort of starts questioning and then um, your, your default model could shift to another model. Mm -hmm. um, well, it's, it's, it's almost like sort of toggling back and forth between sort of 
uh, idealism versus empiricism or something like that, right? I mean, it's just a, a nature of my personality that I'm highly conceptual. So these things are sort of helpful heuristics um, because obviously you don't really phenomenologically, well, I was gonna say you don't necessarily phenomenologically feel idealism or, real, or empiricism, but actually you do. Um, but, but anyway, what gets discussed yeah. in those two kind of competing frameworks that are seen to be either, or again, I feel like there's that non-dual reality is that, well, no, they're not like the, the inside is the outside and the outside is the inside somehow. I just don't really exactly understand yeah. how. Yeah. I, I was, it's funny. I was talking to a, a friend earlier this morning who's, um, he's a Buddhist and practices and, um, we're talking about how, yeah, I mean, a lot of, sort of spiritual tradition, it's all about uh, oneness and non-duality. Everything's interconnected, dependent origination. Um, but the Buddha actually was like, like had like super like analytical conceptual mm -hmm. frameworks where there's like the eightfold path and the three noble truths and then the, the 10 fetters. And there's like lists within categories, within lists and, mm -hmm. you know, all these like subcategories and, um, so it's not a, it's not a, like, you can totally have that kind of mind and there's a lot of use to that kind of mind. And I don't, I don't think that has to be an impediment to realizing uh, non-duality. And, and, and also what I, I, I believe I see as well, you were saying, um, I think phenomenological perception does shape like philosophical viewpoints. And there can be a way in which philosophers are talking past each other because they're having very different experience of the world and calling it something else and just trying to trying to accurately relate and describe how they see things. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, you've got another philosopher with totally different brain chemistry uh, who's seeing things differently. And yeah, that's why some are empiricists, some are rationalists. Yeah. I was really interested. You posted, I think, in that Qualia computing group, um, a, a, some pictures of you in a, in a space that was like a, a mirror oh, yeah. <laughs> enclosure with a bunch of diamonds sort of in suspension. It looked like Indra's net, basically. Yeah. Um, and you said the infinity mirror room. Yeah. yeah. And you said something like this is the, well, I, I forget the exact way you put it, but something like this is the, the best representation of this phenomenological state of mind that I've sort of experienced. And so one, I was deeply interested in two, I found like this is, these aids are helpful. And, you know, you mentioned the Verveke conversations and with Lehman and, and I, and, and like finding symbols that could be, uh, you know, guides and aids for these sorts of, of shifts would be super helpful. And so I would, I guess a question for you would be like, can you explain what you meant by that? How that, you know, does a good job of representing your phenomenological experience? And could you think of other examples that could be helpful to sort of, you know, you, you, I know you've used the example of the spider's web, yeah. which is, which is a helpful one, but like any kind of, uh, any kind of, symbols or or representations that could be a way in are super helpful well for, firstly I, I mean i want to say i mean uh, maybe it's a tall order but i i think you know, humans have this potential we've got the conceptual mind we've got the analytical mind and we, you know some people are more uh, pictorial and images help them and uh, this stuff can't, these descriptions, they can be of use. Uh, the maps can be of use. Um, and at the same time, you want to be able to engage in, in those material. So words and pictures, but then also notice that the, those, those cognitive faculties have their limits and, you know, be able to 
learn how to downregulate them and shift into a mode of being that's not about uh, thinking in language or, or mental imagery and just, uh, just to, well, how, how else do you, I mean, I guess like a feeling quality or just a, just a, a perceptual quality that's um, less and less filtered by um, top-down information processing. Um, so then, so then, okay, how do those, so, so describing this, so I was in this infinity mirror uh, room where you know, like sort of hanging diamonds uh, along the walls, but because I could probably show a picture sides, of it, so it'll help maybe. Right, over, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Uh, easier to easier to explain. But it really occurred to me. I was like, this is this is like my experience. This is how I feel. What it's like to be, um, and it's the in in that picture each hanging diamond represents like a node of experience a sensation here that's a point of experience experience of air here sensations hearing all nodes of experience and they seem to be just just hanging in their place known there and um in this room there's no obvious center because there's mirrors on the ceiling floor and the walls so everything's spreading out in infinite directions there's no sense of a boundary i mean in the wall, I mean, in, in the in the in the in fact, actually, in that room, it's it's less good because there is clearly an exit. <laughs> like you know, sure, you yeah. Walk into the mirror. But um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 it's interesting to it was interesting to go into that room. It was in a museum here in Barcelona, and I I had that image in my mind for a long time, for months, sort of just feeling this and and it I was feeling this and then that image yeah sort of Indra's net infinity mirror room was playing in my mind as a way to try to represent hmm. um yeah you said do I have any other images so I'll just I'll just pop this here I I need to draw it but there's some way I want to describe I don't know if you've ever heard um uh people talk about like like quarter there's like one sense door, like God's sense door to experiencing everything. This is another yeah. kind of attainment. And uh, I, there's like a drawing I'm trying to work on. If I finish it uh, before this comes out, I'll send it to you and you could put it. That would be awesome. Hey, that would be, awesome. hey, that would be really cool. We'll put it on the, the wiki. That would be amazing. See, like this would be super yeah. cool if like people... Yeah sharing experiences represented re represented in symbolic fashion that can be aids to meditation and guides to transformation it's like that's that's what it's all about so yeah definitely um even if it's a crude drawn on the back of a napkin or something um right. <laughs> but to, to, to jump back to the to the mirrors and the net and all that it sounds like what you're explaining is sort of like phenomenal reality as a sort of infinite three-dimensional grid in which on each kind of point, there's like a, a node of qualia or a, a, a quale or something. And that these sort of map together into a kind of the, the sense of, of a certain kind of whole that is organically united in some way. Is that one way of putting that? Not no, so much. Even then, even then when you said like the 3D net, there's a way in which like, it's kind of impossible to shape because 
there's a noticing that the, the projection of space is is a a fabrication and it's so it's like it's not even 3d <laughs> it's like, yeah. well let me ask you it's, this it's, it's not not 3d but yeah and again at the risk of over conceptualizing but it, it concepts are my aids to meditation in some ways right so well we'll get into that we'll get okay into that. <laughs> <laughs> um maybe that's bad praxis but uh to to think of it in terms of if there's something to what Kant was talking about, about these this transcendental noumena that we don't have access to, but that we use our sort of categorical modes to shape our sensory experiences of reality, taking that sort of raw data and like filtering it through particular categories, let's say of space-time, is there something to this in terms of like you're past the categories, you've sort of gotten past the top-down filtration system and you're just sort of interacting with raw, not quite noumena, because it's still got to be mediated by sensory input, but at least it's not maybe being conceptually confined by sort of the Kantian categories. Is, is that uh, maybe a helpful way of thinking about it? Okay, I'm not super cued into what the Kantian categories are, what exactly that means. But I mean, there is a, there's a, there's a, something I can do with my attention in which like I can do it like right now where there's just no, there's, there's, no, there's no space. There's, there's, there's like, uh, but yeah, but I mean, sorry, just what is the value? What is the value here? What, what am I trying to communicate? Um, I, I would like to, to, to go back to yeah the value to to you and, sure, and, and your sure. practice and and yeah you say okay uh, yeah Brendan you can you can steer this how you want but um you said these conceptual frames are your aid in meditation and if you're banking too hard on those it may be that you're neglecting this ability to actually drop those yeah and in which case I would then like, like heavily recommend doing practices that get away from conceptual thinking. So m go more into the somatic. So yeah. move your attention into your body and away from conceptual. Yeah. I mean, so I've done, you know, breath work, just focusing on the breath until the chatter dissipates, falls away into the background. And then finally, more or less, you don't have a thinking mind. You just have breaths and all the sort of narrative kind of disappears. And so I, I feel like that's close to sort of non-categorical thinking or non-conceptual thinking, but just sort of being. Um, and I've had, and then in those experiences, I mean, my eyes have been closed, but, you know, I'll have the sensation that sort of my hands will disappear. And when I did a week-long meditation retreat, it was the most intense experience I'd had doing this because I felt like basically my whole body kind of disappeared. And, and I was sort of, I felt this, I don't know, sort of this kind of energetic rush. And so I was sort of sitting in this conceptual, mostly free space, feeling somewhat disembodied and feeling kind of excitedly drawn up in some way, which by describing it that way, maybe overstates it a little bit, but like that was more or less how I would describe the phenomenal reality of it. I just say that because I have, I, 
and generally speaking, my meditation practice has been non-conceptual, or at least that's, you know, been the aim of it. Um, but then it's sort of like, what I don't know what to do is then what, right? I can sit in non-conceptual space, but I never shift my phenomenological agentic center or anything like that. And I don't know, I'm just sort of stuck in calm, calmness. Okay. So, so to, to, to get like really practical, I think, you know, the calmness is just the stepping stone to insight. So when there's too much um, chaotic emotional content or so many thoughts, scheming, planning, memory, uh, regrets, um, remembering that gets in the way of the ability to do the insight practice, which is like clearly look at the, the model. Uh, so yeah, so you, you want to be able to get calm, quiet down the chatter, or at least, you know, the chatter can just go to the background. I mean, it's, it's hard to, you have to be on retreat for a long time before, like, you'll, you'll get to a point where there's like no yeah. languaging thoughts, but um, yeah, really, I, I really think you want to be building your metacognition, building your concentration power and clarity of mind. And then, and then with, with equanimity. So you, you do practices to, to bolster these and with more, um, more attentional clarity, you can, you can zoom into the more specific detail of what's of, of sensations and such. Got a, a sort of a, a bigger picture of how you're phase shifting, what's the, the procedures, what's going on uh with equanimity you're not being okay you're not distracted by the world and and your personal baggage and such um and then with these honed um cognitive faculties you do inside practice you look for where's the sense of self where's the center where's the sense of boundaries to the mind and really point attention okay i feel the boundary here and so i'm like with my attention investigating that boundary. Yeah. yeah, no, that's super helpful. So, um, okay. So let's say you do, I'm sitting there I'm I've done the kind of, let's say half an hour work to get calm and reduce the chatter. Um, well, I guess question, is that enough time to, or, 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 well, I guess that, that, that's a question too, but let's say I'm, I'm in that kind of uh, state of equanimity. Now I turn my attention to my phenomenal experience and I feel, yeah, there's a Brendan Dempsey agent in my head, <laughs> a little homunculus man. And, uh, and then I can try to interrogate the boundaries of that. And then, and then what, I guess is sort of, maybe I just have to experience that and come back and say, all right, I, I did that for, I don't know how long would be a good thing. So maybe that would be a, a good question too. So uh, how long to do that sort of practice before maybe you could move to a new, oh, okay. Yeah. When I did that, this happened and that was really interesting. And I could, you know, then maybe use that as my next stepping stone, something like that it would be a good idea or no. So, well, yeah, yeah, totally. So, so, I mean, this is a really typical sort of routine is uh, that a lot of people have 
success with and, and, and how I, it's actually not quite what I was doing, but, but I know people who have success with this is uh, an hour a day, at least, a, you know, an hour a minute. You use the first, and in some way I agree, it's the first half an hour is just warming up. Like, and it's, it's maybe you do a concentration practice, the first half an hour to just settle, sort of sharpen your, your concentration skills, uh, sort of get into the rhythm. And then you could, you know, the second half an hour, um, yeah, start examining, start, start looking for the self, the, the, the homunculus in here, just you look and you look. And I mean, it can, yeah, just take years, you know, you for, for years, I sort of, and, and for years, I was looking at the center point and reducing it and getting it smaller and smaller. And then really, home, okay, here's the center. And then seeing it appear, just stops getting represented. Wait, your audio cut out there for one second at a crucial uh, point. So you said you found the center and you made it smaller and smaller, and then and then you focused on that. As, so, yeah, so I really became very familiar. Okay, I've located the center point, like, um, and I could begin to witness it appear and disappear, appear and disappear very, very quickly. Um, so this is another thing I think people need to develop is uh, NPSs, your noticings per second, um, so that you, could, you can see things, um, uh, phenomenal content appear and disappear sort of very rapidly at a, at a finer and finer grain level, appear and disappear, appear and disappear at a, at a rate of like um, around three times per second, which, which sounds very fast, but it's, it's very doable to build up your um, noticings per second to notice this kind of frame rate of the mind. I mean, there's things you can notice that are flickering like way faster than that. So it's, it's not actually like superhuman. I mean, that's how quickly it appeared to be flashing for me. And for years, just observing this. And, and then eventually at some point, um, it's, it stopped being represented in the mind, the center stopped being represented. Um, Did, does that mean that in terms of this, that center flickering in and out, that basically it became full time flickered out, like there was, it, it disappeared? Or what do you mean? What, what was that transition from the self kind of flickering on and off to no longer being represented? What, what does that mean? Yeah, yeah, basically that. So it full time flickered out. So like, in, you know, at some point it flickered out and then it never flicked back on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's something to be said about, well, the right practice at the right time yields the results. And, you know, you can't, what the final switch was for me, I don't think will necessarily be the final switch for everyone. And it's not like even you can just recreate the same move now and then you'll get the same results or you, 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 there's, there's so much of a, of a journey to go through before yeah. this. Um, so, I mean, to put that into context and w w one thing, one thing I, I see with you and I really relate to this is like a, such a fascination in the, 
the conversation in the in the conceptualizing of things and one thing i i i feel quite fortunate about is like i i get really intellectually stimulated with a lot of these these, these yeah these books and these conversations and podcasts and um so there's a nice way in which like my thoughts are very entertaining like i can i can just spend hours just thinking and it's like a really enjoyable experience actually um but then there's a heavy pull there which can be uh distraction taking away from mm-hmm. yeah remember that there's, there's some work to do that's not um about conceptualizing things although like we were saying before in that last moment for me on the the jhana retreat when i was contemplating dependent origination it it was actually quite a I, I was conceptually thinking i was there were thoughts i was sort of visualizing things you know and so you know it's not all bad that there, there is help there at the right time the right place but you also want to be able to drop it that again yeah bring it down to practical terms you can only pay attention to so many threads at once and if i were giving someone a prescriptive sort of meditative regime to follow it's like uh let's just focus on a few things a few things to kind of work on um okay let's first just like get your concentration skills good or let's work on um increasing your your noticings per second so you can perceive phenomena rising and passing at a quicker frame rate um and 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 then you know trying to find out okay which one of these practices is more appropriate for 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 the individual depending on on, on where they're at and it, and it depends also which stage of insight they're at so the stages of insight are, are um sort of a a model that i follow that daniel igram has really sort of laid out um also mahasi saidal talks about this in this sort of insight manual uh there's these stages you go through where the quality of your attention is different your emotional relationship to being seems to alter um how easy it is for you to sit how much motivation you have at any one point and people people recognize it yeah like sometimes i like don't need as much sleep other times i'm like exhausted all times like why is that well there's many factors you know diet and and you're just your daily routine but i think there does seem to be these sort of natural sort of stages of insight that people cycle through um what were some of the upper threads i think well let me let me continue with that one for a minute one um one of the things that since i've sort of felt like i've stalled with my practice there's a lot less interest in doing it so i haven't done it in a while yeah. um so that's one thing that i need to get back doing but it helps to have a sense that i'm kind of doing something again you know that it's that it is going to kind of go somewhere um and so this is helpful for that um and so i guess um maybe in a very just very practical question would be what's what would be a from coming from where i'm at which is you know given the background that i've explained but also in a state where basically i haven't been really meditating regularly for you know a couple months well maybe a month now um and i know that this sort of regularity and discipline is really important is there do you have any recommendations for you know what to be doing so that i feel like yes yeah so i i think this 
is applicable, not just when it comes to meditation, but like learning any skill. Like if you don't see progress and it's not in part enjoyable, just your motivation for it just tapers off dramatically. Um, so that there's a skill in like, how do I keep the fire burning? How do I keep the interest? In, and, and quite frankly, like peak experiences when people are meditating and then something like weird happens. Yeah. Your sense of the body dissolves. It's like, Whoa, that's kind of cool and interesting that that inspires you to keep meditating more. But if that hasn't happened for a long time, then it's like, yeah, I just don't like, what's the point. Um, so I, th I think there's something to talk about incorporating like uh, skillful use of peak experiences and it's such a delicate subject, but, you know, this perhaps psychedelics might, you know, uh, play a role here. Um, although there's you know, the potential for abuse and, 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 and you've got to remember, this is not about a peak experience. You know, it's not about just recreating a peak experience again and again. But certainly, I think in my journey, I, I was seeing progress quite quickly and then cool things were happening. I was going on retreat and having like, you know, I remember getting first jhana first time, like, whoa, like, this is mad. And that's inspiring. Um, I, I, I will also say just living, living in the century we live in, uh, yeah, there might be interesting technology coming out that propels people's practice. Um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan of nootropics. And I, I can't speak about... Uh, what are nootropics? Ah, okay. Nootropics are essentially cognitive enhancing supplements. Uh, it's, a whole, it's a whole world. There's so many to explore with different safety profiles. And, and, that's, and I, I won't advise anyone to take anything. Um, just do your research. But... Like you meditate better when you feel more awake, when you have more motivation, when you're, when you're, um, you're more concentrated. Like these are the kind of faculties of mind that help you to meditate better, have more clarity on perceptual what's going on, more insight. Uh, I think there's something to be said about um, looking at what supplements we take or, or our mm -hmm. diet. And so how do we get you motivated again that you want to um sit and meditate more well uh, yeah well sorry keep going keep going okay so so yeah and again i don't want to overload you so go it for it be... <laughs> i know i know you want it because i know you find it intellectually stimulating like i do but actually for practical purposes it might not be good so sure um it could, it could be that, yeah, you're just in a particular rut or stage and just in time, naturally, you will pass through this and then the motivation will kick in again. Or um, can, can we speed up that process where we find a meditation style for you? So one, one thing I, I do with my, um, my online meditation group, meditative.dev, so I'm always proposing like new meditation techniques every week, like a different meditation technique so that people can in the beginning, at least find a technique that works for them, find a technique that they 
just have a, an affinity for that they find interesting that they feel good when they do it. That, okay. You try all these different techniques that you, that one's not really for you. You don't really like noting. You don't really like the pasta, but maybe you like uh, fire casino or meta. Um, and then you're motivated to do it. So I would recommend then like, let's try and find a practice for you that you find interesting. Well, do you know fire casino, for example? really interesting so this is you you're in a dark room you're staring at a candle flame uh staring at it for like one minute and then you close your eyes and you're left with the after image of the flame like a just called an imiter and like a white white dot yeah yeah and then you just you peer into with your eyes closed you peer into this after image and you just keep looking at it and the longer you look interesting things happen and this this can be very exciting that sounds fascinating um that's sort of yeah so when i was reading the visuddhi maga um and talking where it goes into all the nimittas and stuff like i mm. briefly tried i'm like again i've i've been teacherless this entire time so i'll like read something and be like oh okay that must be and then i'm like ah, i must be doing this wrong but that sounds that reminds me of something that i i tried from that um but that sounds fascinating i will I'll give that a try. I mean, even just knowing that there's something to that, right? Because if you don't know and you don't have any guidance, it's like, all right, I'll just stare at something in my mind and maybe that'll do something. But if there's some good reason to yeah. think that it will, that's encouraging. <laughs> that may, that's what, you know, for me, that's like one of the deepest questions is like, how do people figure out this stuff in the beginning? Because um, if you don't know that there's like something interesting there, if you meditate long enough, then why did why did the first person stick with it so long <laughs> like, right like, you know right. they're like focusing on their breath and when you do that for a little bit like yeah whatever <laughs> yeah no that's true um okay and that's called fire casino fire casino and actually casino um, oh casino like a disc it gotcha okay i thought you were saying fire casino i'm like oh that casino. sounds kind of cool <laughs> <laughs> that's something else yeah <laughs> you gotta go to vegas for that um, yeah. no this one you can do in your own home so cool um and and actually as a as a reference um daniel ingram uh i believe co-authored a book with oh i forget her name um but the book the the book is just called Fire Casino, I believe. And it's a really interesting short read. It's about a woman who's doing a fire casino retreat. And then uh, Daniel Ingram is, is coaching her. And it's like their sort of dialogue back and forth as she's going deeper and deeper and deeper into the practice and uh, hmm. really cool stuff is happening. Okay, awesome. Do you encourage or discourage especially for someone like me who is very kind of highly conceptual about things to read a bunch of books. Like, is it better to just stick with a practice and try to focus on the practice? Or do you think that there's a lot to be gained by reading works from Berbea and Daniel Ingram and other people in order to kind of fill out some, cause that's the thing, right? It's like, if you know that there's something to a thing and you have an example of that, that's a guide, you're like, Oh, I want to do that. But otherwise, if you don't have the inspiration that can come from knowing where these practices can go, it's, uh, it can be demotivating. Well, I mean, I think, I think for someone like you, you're, you're going to be reading books anyway. So, 
So uh, yeah, I mean, even if I were to say, you know, don't don't read any of these books, you're, you're going to. You're well, going I guess to. I just wonder if there's a danger of um, of sort of having expectations or a goal. I mean, this is sort of this. I always had such trouble with this because people would be like, "Oh, you just meditate and don't worry about it being being anything or going anywhere." I'd be like, "Well, that sounds like it. That sounds how? Where do I get my motivation to do that at all?" Um, and there's just all this sense. And I don't personally, I mean, I don't know, there might be some, there's certainly a truth that if you're trying to push things to happen, then that's going to be counterproductive. But if you go in being like, this can be anything. And as long as it, I'm just doing it, that's all that matters. Never really made sense to me. But at the same time, you know, if you like read a certain book and you're like, okay, this thing is where this leads and this can happen. And then when that isn't happening, then you can, you know, have a kind of frustration or, you know, so that would be why I would, I would wonder if maybe not reading those things up front, but sort of progressively maybe falling into them, maybe under the, you know, the aegis or the guidance of, of a teacher who would be like, okay, now that you've gotten there, now go here, because it's, it's kind of interesting and, kind of unusual thing about our society that we have knowledge available in its entirety, so to speak. And there's no sort of sequential progress that, that gets made so that slowly through time, things become less and less occluded, you know? Um, and there's something to be said about that way of learning things rather than just, oh, here's the whole map up front. Okay, I must be here and I've got to get there or something. So that was just sort of the, my potential, you know, uh, the potential problems of reading things up front. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think we need a more sophisticated, sophisticated understanding of what a human being is. And everything you just said, like there is room for all those perspectives about, yes, stop thinking and just be and there's nowhere to go but also there is certainly a, a route of progress to make and balancing all this become familiar with those different uh, uh, relationships to being or inclinations and, and, and feel it notice when you're in a, a striving mind um that's propelling you forward that can be a good thing and that can also be uh, a detriment sometimes but but really get familiar like become you know it can it become obvious okay if you're you're meditating and you're breathing how much are you with this breath or you're subtly leaning into the next breath expecting the next mm. breath and become mm. familiar with that and then also and, and balancing these, you, you, need, you need both. You need to be able to just be and to be able to, 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 to do. Yeah. The, the motivation to go back to that issue too for me is, um, and, and reading Ken Wilber's work has really helped me be able to frame this, the, it kind of brought a bunch of different pieces I've been mulling over for a long time together in an interesting way, which is that like, if the process of human beings as they sort of grow, is one of increasing self-awareness so that you're no longer sort of living or you're no longer seeing the world through something, but you're able to become aware of what you were seeing the world through, right? So if I'm, if I'm just totally run by my desires and inclinations and that's what I'm seeing through, 
then I'm going to, I'm just going to be blind to what's actually governing me. Right. But then if I can step back from that and see, oh, I have these desires and I have them, not I am them. Right. And so that step of remove gives me a vantage that I can see. Oh, and now I'm, now I've gained some, gained some greater autonomy because I'm not being controlled by those senses, you know, those desires and needs. I'm aware of them. And I'm, yeah. And I think if you follow this process back enough, you kind of get to the point where, you're aware of yourself and then the self is no longer what you're seeing the world through, but you're, there's some way. And I think it's what you're expressing of sort of like, Oh no, that self was another lens. Um, And so when you get past the lens of that centered self, then there's something there, which is what is, what motivates me. It's a, it's a, it's a mystery. It's a, it is at, at present purely conceptual because I can think about it, but I can't, I haven't experienced it. Well, and, and, and to give you some practical guidance on how to get there, I think what you're talking about is, is metacognition. And it does seem to be, you can build your metacognition and then there's at a threshold point in which it like, you have awareness of the small self and you no longer feel like super glued to it and that's the only lens you see through and okay how do we build metacognition yeah um real simple the the noting technique where you're 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 labeling things um you know i'd point people to um shinzen young's um see here feel technique as a really good introduction to noting that directly builds metacognition i believe and then you're just 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 keep growing that building that building that building that and then yeah there seems to be a threshold point which okay uh now you've got like higher order awareness interesting okay yeah and so those that's another that's part of that skill and so being able to differentiate like is is building your metacognition basically the same thing as concentration meditation then where if like you know okay yeah see like for me they feel like the same right because because people will always be like oh if you grow your med- your concentration then you'll start to see that you're not your thoughts right that you have thoughts and that's i feel like part of that but then it, it's sort of like that's that's the conclusion it's like oh you're you're you have thoughts you aren't your thoughts but it's like well no there's got okay yeah so <laughs> yeah yeah so the, i mean this is where um I think if things aren't sort of uh, distinguished uh, clearly, yeah, it's all kind of muddled and it's like, well, what am I actually doing here? And no, I d- metacognition is not the same thing as developing concentration. And, you know, the difference, you, you can be highly concentrated and absorbed into uh, with a particular meditation object, but you're lacking that higher order awareness that, oh, I'm really concentrated right now. You're just really concentrating, you're locked into it but you don't have this higher order level that of knowing this being is very concentrated right now. That's the metacognition. And, and, and there's different techniques to build concentration and different techniques to build uh, metacognition. And well, there's overlap as well, but yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's very helpful. You know, I just keep, you know, keep to heart, remember the core motivation for me, it's so clear. My, my, my core motivation is I, I, I most deeply care about the reduction of suffering for all sentient beings. And it's like to keep that in heart along this whole way and balance that with other motivations. Yeah. That I would 
Well, it's so part of this for me too is um, sort of finding myself in a position where I'm a moderator of this Facebook group and, you know, and in increasingly having conversations with people who have some influence. I think that if you're going to be trying to help people and trying to alleviate suffering, then you should have some genuine insight into how, you know, how that can be done and what that looks like in a first person experience. And that, there's something potentially duplicitous. Uh, it's a strong way of putting it to, to, if I were to come out and be like, well, I'm Brendan Dempsey and I do metamodern spirituality conversations, but like not really have, you know, any deep personal connection with, um, with, with what these insights are kind of revealing and how they can alleviate suffering, then that would be sort of a misuse, I think, of these platforms in some ways. And that's when I think that these things can become just sort of their own thing that are ego building and that are, you know, oh, I have a project and that gives me a sense of importance and that sort of a thing. So I want to avoid that, which means, um, which, which is good. I think it ties in directly with my own individual spiritual aspirations, which are to gain a better sense of reality in order to genuinely help people. Um, for, for kind of full disclosure, I very much see myself as um, a seeker in all this, you know, like, and I wouldn't want anyone to think that I am presenting myself as sort of anything other than that. Uh, but I think there's also a, a kind of uh, exemplary teacherly uh, possibility of sort of uh, co-learning with people um, and presenting sort of a model of, hey, I want to know more. I want to grow. I want to develop myself and then finding people who can help me do that. Hopefully there's sort of, um, if there is anything kind of, uh, that people can take from that. I mean, this, this conversation I think is sort of a good example, which is hopefully like, like I'm learning a lot from this. And then hopefully in, in other people being sort of vicariously a part of my learning experience, they are also learning and growing would be the ideal. So, um, yeah, at the same time, all that said, you know, there is the aspiration to, to be, to, 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 to gain the sorts of insight that are helpful and then be in a position to help spread and, and, and share th those insights for the betterment of, of people, which I think is really what spirituality and religion are all about when they're working well. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, you, you, you said a lot. Um, <laughs> I, I guess, we, yeah, we probably don't have time to get to get into all of that, but I think you covered. Um, well, and correct me if I'm, correct me if you feel like there are areas of that that are potentially dangerous or misguided or anything like that. No, no, I, I resonated a lot with what you were saying. I mean, I, I uh, you know, I, the last part, um, there is this kind of a, what is it? It's sort of a self-validating bias in some way where it, we, we presume our, uh, our, our actions and content are justified because we're, oh, you know, the hope is that, you know, we, we just spread the information and the love and this is helping people. And actually maybe we need to like really check in, like actually this is, this could be like a really inefficient mm. method. And, mm. um, no, not 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 saying it is or it isn't, but you know, it's like you're always sort of keeping ourselves in, in in check in that way, and and being willing to 
shift gears yeah. when we find out this actually, this isn't as helpful as we thought. Well, the big thing for me, my big sort of axiom and presumption is that um, there, well, starting with a fact, there is such a preponderance of suffering and alienation and despair and nihilism and, you know, and degradation in the world today. Fact. <laughs> fact that's a fact. Uh, my axiom or presumption is that um, we can't do anything to help alleviate those problems if we're not speaking to the internal phenomenology, phenomenological ex lived experiences of people in order to reorient that towards a way of being and living in the world and with other people. Um, and so for me, yes, there will be many people and there are currently who are trying to change systems and technologies and things like that. And that's so vital. Um, my kind of piece of the puzzle, given what motivates me, what my own personal aspirations and interests are, is trying to put things out into the world that can help with that inner reorientation element. So in some ways, yes, like, you know, it might seem almost absurd, the idea that, hey, what are we going to do about the climate catastrophe? Oh, well, we're going to meditate, <laughs> you know, like that seems like a bizarre notion. At the same time, I feel like there's a very direct causal link between the problems in the world and our sort of the way that we're thinking about it. And that's what we need to shift. Um, so that's another big part of it for me too. Yeah, I've, I've, I mean, I've come to a, a similar conclusion. It, it's a point that's very hard to um, transmit, and especially people who are not doing so much sort of inner spiritual growth and, and such that, yeah, I mean, I've, I've come to a place where I, I think the most important work is self-transformation to, to become the kind of person that's not part of the problem. And that's, um, it's, it's hard, to, it's really hard to, because this isn't to, to deny the importance of, you know, political action and, and stuff, but it, yeah, I'm, it's such a tall order, like, because I, I even think fourth path is not enough, like, our handship is not enough. We have to become bodhisattvas. Hmm. And that requires not just wake up, but, you know, clean up, grow up, show up. And um, that's, that's something I'm, you know, still very much working on. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a, I, I don't think there can be peace on earth until uh, humans understand them such self much better we have much more emotional control we're not suffering we're not we're not so motivated by fear and a big part is we know how to communicate with each other that's so hard to be able to see other people's point of view and and not have uh malintentions or you know um yeah 100 percent, and that's why i really believe in the stuff that that all these different folks are doing. I think it's, it's like the good work that needs to be done. And, you know, I see 
I have this sense that there's a growing appreciation and a shared sense of, of, of urgency about these sorts of things. And I'm, I'm just kind of strangely, I'm certainly optimistic, optimistic isn't the right word, but I'm strangely um, reassured or something like that, that there are other folks who are like, yes, this, this is, this is important. And this, this stuff needs tending to, and this is what hasn't been tended to. And in part that helps to explain why we're in the situation that we're in. So um, all that's encouraging. I'm encouraged by that. And I, I, I'm interested to be a part of that. You know, we're all grappling with it. And I feel like if we're, I think that people who are interested in these interested is probably too light of a word, but people who feel deeply aspirationally called to spiritually develop can't and won't ignore these sorts of issues. doesn't mean that anyone's going to be doing them even well, you know, but I think it's part of that broader conversation about, all right, exactly as you were saying, you know, like, well, the waking up part is there, you know, how do we do the cleaning up part um, and the showing up part? Um, yeah. I mean, I think that those become that sort of unavoidable, uh, additional set of, of concerns in a sort of bodhisattva engagement with the world. Um, and to me, there's just everything's so interconnected in so many fraught and, 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 and hard challenging ways. It's almost, you know, it's, it's seemingly impossible to do that with any ultimate form of integrity, whatever that is, whether that's ever been possible. So anyway, topics and ideas maybe for a, a future thought, yeah. but yeah. Well, my friend, this has been fascinating, interesting, deeply uh, insightful and helpful. I also just appreciate you taking the time. I appreciate you be, being willing to have this sort of be part of, you know, a, a broader conversation with invisible participants as well, as it were, in some ways. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I just well, tomorrow or now make a dedication to do at least 30 minutes of meditation tomorrow. And uh, and then look into fire casino. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.